Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 662. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, the good weather has arrived in the UK. Thank God for that. Everything seems to have like lifted spirits a little bit as well and possibly, possibly sneaking out of major lockdown, which is always a, a kind of great thing. So yes, we're doing seemingly okay. I hope everyone else is on the same boat as us. So let's get into the main fiction, Eventual Consistency by Zero HP Lovecraft. Now this story was previously published on the author's website and there's a link there to go and see it there. Zero HP Lovecraft is in the room with us right now. He is known architect hater. He is a known antichrist hater and woman respects maximalist. He believes that love and emotions are chemicals, but hypocrite that he is, he relies on chemicals to tell his emotions are chemicals. But he will not perish like a dog, nor he will fight. Now, this story is narrated by Randall L. Swartz. Randall L. Swartz is best known for his seminal books on Perl programming language that helped make the World Wide Web possible and popular. He produced a weekly audio and video podcast on open source software, but has given that up after 13 years for those five hours... (laughs) 
<laughs> a week back. I get them back then, Randall. Between the podcast and bouncing all over the world, teaching programming and speaking at conferences, he's no stranger to the limelight. He enjoys pulling out his gear to record yet another narration and likens to getting read bedtime stories to the kids he never had and looks forward to future assignments. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Eventual Consistency. A database, in its most abstract form, is a list of records. A ledger, and from the perspective of the client, it does not matter if the ledger is a paper book or an array of servers in a warehouse, though the latter is more usual. However, from the perspective of the database, each server must be viewed as an individual entity. To write an entry into the ledger is not so simple because a hard disk may fail at any time. To guard against this possibility, the database makes use of redundancy. Writing one record to the database could mean transmitting a single new entry across the network many times, creating multiple copies, one on each server. Transmissions are, regrettably, unreliable, and to guarantee data parity between all servers it may be necessary to send the same message over and over, waiting after each transmission for a confirmation that may not arrive. This type of Byzantine coordination can be very slow, and a common strategy for mitigating this is called a gossip protocol, in which each server in the array periodically shares its most up-to-date records with a subset of its peers. Under this system, one server may fall out of sync with the pack, but in time all nodes will achieve a consensus. When a distributed ledger is guaranteed to converge into singularity over time, we call it eventual consistency. My motivation for explaining this kind of technical design will soon become apparent. As I look for a way to interpret the things I have seen, I try to find some kind of narrative, some taboo that my friend must have transgressed, which would make his fate a deserved punishment. But real life rarely has such consinity. It would be comforting to think that it was because of a devil's deal that he made with some crone of a fortune teller in his remote and rural hometown in Bulgaria or that he might have acquired a token of some ancient cursed man who came to a similar end, a slender leather-bound diary perhaps, or, more romantically, a dagger that had been used in an act of betrayal in some unsavory dispute now lost to the centuries. But as I have tried to uncover some trace of Alexei's past that could justify his ultimate fortunes, I find nothing, nothing at all to make sense of his final days from the last time we spoke in a coffee bar in Palo Alto in the warmth of a balmy silicon morning to his graphomaniacal scribblings on every whiteboard in our office space three days later to his sudden disappearance from a crowded cafeteria in the mercurial glow of the phosphorescent office tube lights. We may start from his drawings, 
which I was able to photograph, I believe in their entirety, the day of his disappearance. At first it seemed to me that he had only repeated the same pattern over and over, but closer inspection revealed subtle variations. There are four distinct configurations, which I will call by the different colors in which they were consistently rendered, blue, green, red, and black. Although the exact contours of each maze differed, the attribute that varied from color to color was the number of exits. The blue mazes were porous, having a multiplicity of openings along their exterior walls. The green ones had two openings, suggesting a definite direction, an entrance, and an exit. The red ones had a single opening, a way in, but no way out, a dead end. Worst of all were the black labyrinths, which were perfect closures, impermeable to the outside, inescapable from within. What impetus or derangement could drive a man to undertake such a pointless task? A fermi estimation of our whiteboard area yields an approximate square area of three feet by two feet by a hundred half-height cubicles, plus six feet by four feet by two walls by twelve offices, plus ten feet by four feet by two walls by five conference rooms, plus a few odd partitions, totaling over sixteen hundred square feet of whiteboards, all of which were saturated with drawings of labyrinths, in a twisted parody of the flowcharts and UML diagrams that ordinarily cover our walls. These things are not so different. In fact, a labyrinth resembles a software architectural diagram. Perhaps every program, like every mathematical relation, like every number and ratio and equation, is a platonic form that transcends matter and time, and our code is only ever an imperfect reflection, a perversion of a noble idea. The inscrutable passages of the labyrinth have always been regarded as pathways to the sacred or the divine. The Gothic cathedrals in Chartres, Reims, and Amiens all contained symbolic labyrinths rendered in the pavement of their floors, and these labyrinths were intended as an allusion to the holy city. Pilgrims to these cathedrals would kneel on the ground and trace the path of the labyrinth while praying. This devotional was known as the Path to Jerusalem. In Book Two of Histories, Herodotus describes the Egyptian labyrinth in the sacred city of crocodiles. Finding it inconceivable that such an intricate and spectacular structure could have been built by mortal hands. I am struck by a similar sense of holy terror when I look at Alexei's labyrinths, especially the black ones, and I cannot help but reflect on what sacred mazes and holy books both have in common, that they are composed of passages, that they are designed to capture us, and that we become lost in a labyrinth almost as readily as we are lost in a book. I was Alexei's work mentor, and he had many youthful stories to tell. In his previous job, he had worked remotely, and on the weekends he had traveled the world, making his way through Latin America, 
from Paraguay to Peru to Colombia, Argentina, and Brazil. He traveled as far as the Falkland Islands, but he never told his team, letting them believe that he was only in a satellite office in Southern California. I can't imagine they didn't know, but some things are probably better left unsaid for everybody. On Alexei's first day at the company, he was issued a corporate email and temporary password, as is standard in any tech startup onboarding process. But the first time he tried to authenticate with our network, the system recognized him as another employee who had been with us for years. And although this issue was easily remedied, it presented a security risk that compelled us to do a deep dive to find the root cause of the issue. This responsibility fell to me, and impossibly I found the cause to be a duplicate UUID in our user database. To the layman, this may not seem shocking. The version 4 UUID, Universal Unique Identifier, contains 122 randomly generated bits, and if they are supplied by a cryptographically strong source of randomness, the odds of a duplicate are 1 in 5.3 times 10 to the 36th, an unfathomably large number, effectively infinite to anyone bound to the earth. One is tempted to blame the random number generator in this case, or some kind of faulty cache, or an initialization error. But these IDs were generated years apart on different hardware by different libraries. No, such a thing cannot be explained merely as a software defect. I am not a superstitious man, and it may be hard to attribute any significance to what is literally an artifact of a random number generator. But in the face of such an astronomically improbable event, one cannot help but wonder what machinations lie behind that face. In retrospect, I have come to think of this incident as a portent, as if Alexei himself were some kind of glitch. It is too fanciful to suggest that his disappearance was merely an occasion of ontological convergence, erroneous data correcting itself, as in a gossip protocol. But despite his colorful history, this is too far. No matter how one wishes to locate some trigger that could explain this mystery, Unexplained disappearances are more common than you might think, and if we exclude those cases where the missing person obviously did not want to be found, we still find hundreds of cases each year in the U.S. alone. A common scenario is the disappearance of a hiker or outdoorsman as he travels through some forest or national park. The obvious explanation in these cases is a simple accident such as, for example, a tumble down a steep hill. More exotic theories may cleave towards networks of unmapped underground caves, or even fairies or alien abductions, which in some cosmologies are thought to be one and the same. I am not in such a hurry to rule out supernatural explanations, 
because I think that folk theories often capture some correct observation of the world, and they merely lack the rigor or the will to align those findings with genuine knowledge. In this case, we have an impossible observation, so we must consider at least improbable explanations. In addition to the fact of Alexei's disappearance, a parsimonious theory should be able to account for his drawing. Hypergraphia is a kind of mania, often seen in cases of schizophrenia, and it may manifest as a compulsion to write the same words over and over again. Some of the affected may write incoherent nonsense, starting along the outermost perimeter of a page and working their way to the interior in a spiral pattern. Still others may feel a desire to record every minute detail of their lives from moment to moment, as if they were afraid of leaving a single breath unaccounted for. It is more common to write words, but maniacal drawing is also an indication. And in truth, there were some written annotations to Alexei's drawings in a language that resembled Arabic, and which neither I nor my phone nor my colleague Jahan could decipher. Regardless, pivoting off the notion that a labyrinth is, at least allegorically, a kind of book, we can proceed by interrogating some famous instances of spontaneous bibliogenesis. If we consider the paradigm case of Holy Writ, letters and books, which are considered to be one and the same substance of God, as the author of the Gospel of John maintains, we might consider the oddity of High Ibn Yaksin, whose name meant alive, son of a ware, and whose true story is recounted in the 12th century historian Abu Jufar Ibn Tufayl's Philosophus Autodidactus. As all Muslims know, the Quran is revealed to the Prophet Muhammad in the 7th century by the angel Gabriel. But in this case, it's less remarkable than the story of Hai, who was himself born spontaneously into the uninhabited wilderness. And this is also relevant to us, for here we have a case of a mysterious appearance, a natural complement to the mysterious vanishment. Hai grew up amid the animals in the merciless desert, where he observed nature closely, and of his own accord he came to have faith in the unmoved mover. Later in life, he traveled as far as Nishapur, and upon meeting some Muslims, he realized that he had discovered Islam all on his own, and that the hadiths and the verses of the Quran were already on his lips and in his heart. Even if we put aside the specific theological claims of Islam, what is salient in this story for our purposes is that we have a book which came into being in different times and in different places through the minds of different men, neither of whom could have had prior knowledge of its words. Stranger and more intriguing still is the story of Coleridge, who claimed to have written his poem Kublai Khan after hearing it in a dream. At the time, he reported that he was reading a book by Purchas, a writer in the 17th century, 
which contains a short passage about the emperor named Kublai Khan. The passage has been found, and is quite short. It says that the emperor ordered trees to be cut down in a forested area through which a river ran, and there he constructed a palace or a hunting pavilion, and he built a high wall around it. This is what Coleridge read. Thereafter he had a dream, in which he saw the construction of the Chinese emperor's palace, and he heard music, and he knew the way we know things in dreams, intuitively, inexplicably, that the music was building the palace. More specifically, the music was the architect of the palace. One recalls the tradition that the city of Thebes was built by a song, and as Coleridge watched the construction of the palace and listened to the music, he also heard a voice that recited the poem. When he awoke, he still remembered the poem, and he wrote it down just as he had heard it. But before he could complete his work, he was interrupted by a visitor, and when he was finally able to return to writing, the words had left him. Coleridge died in 1834, and twenty years after his death, the works of Persian historian Rashid al-Din Hamadani were translated into English, which said that Kublai Khan built a palace that the centuries would destroy, and that the plans for it were revealed to him in a dream. Coleridge, of course, could not possibly have read this book. Alfred Whitehead wrote that time continually brings lucre to eternal things, and here we have a story of a palace that wants to exist not only in eternity, but also in time. Through dreams, it reveals itself to a Chinese medieval emperor, and then, centuries later, to an English poet at the end of the 18th century. But notice that it takes different forms, a song, a poem, and most relevant to us, an architecture. In Coleridge's poem, he even describes a second dream, which might have been Emperor Kublai's dream, in which he hears an Abyssinian maiden singing, and he knows that if he could remember her song, he could also rebuild his palace. I have related these stories because they illustrate the case of an artifact that enters into the world from the outside, taking different forms at different times, infiltrating the minds of men, as by subterfuge. I will now expound a third and more chilling example, which I believe may be the most relevant to the incident that concerns us here. A man whose real name has been lost to us, but it may have been Abdullah Zahr ad-Din, was born in Sanaa in Yemen in the 8th century of the Christian era. That century was, for him, the second of the Hegira. In a dispute over a woman, he murdered his best friend, and, fearing retribution, fled to the coast and booked passage on a ship bound for Persia. The ship was commissioned by a wealthy businessman of Isiphon, and according to Deaths of Eminent Men and the Sons of the Epic by Ibn Kalakan, he sailed with the men of that ship for six years, at times traveling over land and pursuing trade in such diverse locations as Shiraz, Surat, Agra, Patna, in the depths of Nepal, in Kathmandu, 
and in Lhasa. At some point on his journey, he encountered something horrifying on the open ocean, which Ibn Kalakan does not specify, and he disembarked for good, having become irrecoverably fearful of the sea. He made his way to the desert of Inner Arabia, where he lived for ten years in solitude, and became indifferent to the practices of Islam. Thereafter, his story is more well known. When he emerged from the desert, he called himself by a new name, which has been misrendered as Abdul al-Azred. This is believed to be a perversion by European scholars in the 13th or 14th century. Abdul al-Azred is not grammatically or theophorically correct Islamic name. The al in al-Azred is redundant to the name Abdul, and Hazred or Hazrad is not among the 99 names of God. A passage in the Al-Farabi explains the etymology of his true name. Abdul Hazrad is derived from Zarada, to devour. What possessed Abdullah Zahir ad-Din to become the servant of the devourer? We may consider that a Rub al-Khali, or empty space, of the Arabian desert, is held to be inhabited by the Janun, the female jinn, who are spirits of madness and death. In Farsi, the word Janun also means delirium, maddening love, or especially terminal madness resulting from the love of a woman. Despite this, Janun is not compatible with the Western definition of madness. A perfect translation eludes us, but its hallmarks are possession, love, and limitless openness to the outside. When he emerged from the desert, he transcribed the cacophonous droning of the sand into a blasphemous and impious text he called Kitab al-Azif, a term that refers to the nocturnal sounds of insects, which connotes the screeching and howling of demons. Later, Theodorus Philetus of Constantinople would secretly translate the Azif into Greek under the name Necronomicon, that infamous collection of forbidden histories, dark signs, and unspeakable rituals. Like Zarathustra climbing down the mountain, Abdul Hazrat took his message to the people of Damascus. He told them he had seen forbidden Irem, a city of pillars, and that he had found under the ruins of some forgotten nameless city a history and a record of a great ancient race that came to earth from beyond the stars in the eons when the earth was only a lifeless rock. One can easily imagine this crazed man of the desert, howling in the marketplace, resembling nothing so much as the demons he claimed to have seen. But then, in a crowded bazaar, in the unrelenting light of the Arabian sun, he was devoured by invisible monsters amidst a crowd of fright-frozen witnesses. The similarities between Alexei and Abdul Hazrad in their early travels, their sudden prodigious written output, and their strange disappearances, are purely coincidental and circumstantial. Nevertheless, we cannot resist speculations of a metaphysical nature. In the Necronomicon, 
Abdul professed the Platonic and the Pythagorean doctrine of the soul's passage through many bodies. Centuries later, his own soul could have been reincarnated to trace once again his grim trajectory. Nietzsche famously believed in eternal recurrence, the idea that the universe repeats the same patterns and structures endlessly, and that we should strive to live each moment in a way that is worthy of such repetition. The more mundane and more unsettling possibility is that we are chance recipients of messages intended for other audiences entirely, messages that echo through space to ensure consistency among incomprehensible distances. And perhaps all great works enter into the world from the vast outside. Sometimes they are whispered to us by voices that are benevolent or merely alien. But when I look back at the photos of Alexei's labyrinths from that day, I shudder to think of what hideous minds dwell just beyond the boundaries of rationality and perception, and what horrible things they would tell us, if we had the misfortune to hear them. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And there you go. Wow, man. Zero HP Lovecraft. Thank you so much indeed. Again, there's a link on to the website. Pop over there. And Randall, thank you, honestly. Thank you, lad. It's just lovely to have you back in the fold. Back in the fold. I'm taking them five hours back off you. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much. So that is today's show. I hope you have enjoyed it. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through to
by the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best I move slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.